Coming up next, New York's high court rules that congressional districts in the state can be redrawn again for the 2024 elections. SUNY Nanotech is getting a $10 billion boost and we'll have part two of our conversation about the rise in hunger in the state. Those stories and more next on the Legislative Gazette. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative, and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York's High Court has ruled that congressional districts in the state reconfigured for the 2022 elections can be redrawn again for the 2024 elections. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The court ruled in a 4-3 decision that the state's Independent Redistricting Commission must be given another chance to redraw the state's congressional districts for the 2024 elections. In the opinion, recently appointed Chief Judge Rowan Wilson writes that indisputably the Constitution requires the commission to deliver a second set of maps. Wilson writes the people of New York are entitled to the process set out in the Constitution for which they voted. The redistricting process in New York was revised in a constitutional amendment approved by voters in 2014. The ruling is expected to have an impact on the fight for control of the U.S. House. In 2022, the redistricting commission gridlocked. New districts were then drawn by Democrats who controlled the state Senate and Assembly. Those lines were later determined by the high court to be unconstitutionally gerrymandered, and a special master was appointed to redraw the districts. The Court of Appeals that year also found that the legislature should have given the independent redistricting commission a second chance to redraw the maps as required under the state's constitution, but they didn't. In the elections that November, four Democratic House seats flipped to Republicans and helped contribute to the Democrats' loss of party control of the House. Critics blamed the Democrats in the state legislature who drew the maps for overreaching. 
The redistricting commission will now reconvene. They have until February 28th to submit new maps. If the five Democrats and five Republicans on the panel once again cannot agree on a single set of maps, then Democrats who lead the legislature will be allowed to intervene and draw the maps themselves. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. SUNY Nanotech is getting a big boost that could help it become a national research hub. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. Governor Kathy Hochul was in Albany Monday to announce a $10 billion partnership with leading brands in the semiconductor industry to expand semiconductor research and development. This historic investment will establish next-generation research and development center right here right here in Albany at the Nanotech Complex, the most advanced in the country. It'll fund the construction of cutting-edge equipment, the first and only of its kind in North America. And you ready for the name? I have to ask who came up with this name. <laughs> Raise your hand if you really want to. High Numerical Aperture Extreme Ultraviolet Lithography Cluster, okay? <laughs> and don't ask me to say that twice. <laughs> The Democrat says under the new initiative, New York Creates will acquire and install a high NAEUV lithography tool designed and manufactured by ASML at its Albany Nanotech complex, where industry partners, including Micron, IBM Applied Materials, Tokyo Electron, and others, will use the most advanced semiconductor equipment ever made to power tomorrow's mobile phones and computers. Semiconductors are absolutely central to our lives, even though you don't think about them on a regular basis. And the cutting edge is constantly evolving rapidly, rapidly before our eyes. You just look no further than the smartphone in your pocket. Actually, don't look at them, it's kind of disruptive. <laughs> but that one little device has more processing power in it than all the computers combined that existed on our planet 50 years ago. That's amazing. It has 100,000 times the computing power and 9 million times the memory that the computer at the Apollo 11 had to land astronauts on the moon. This is in our lifetime, my friend. This is not happening over 50 years, 100 years. This is happening now. And the countries that are able to lead on semiconductors will be, will be at the vanguard of the world's technological future. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says New York is on tap to reap many benefits. What does this $10 billion investment mean? Three things. Jobs. 700 uh, new high-paying jobs. Second, makes the capital region in upstate New York the global leader in chip research. And third, it shows that we can get this National Semiconductor Technology Center. Schumer has been beating the drum loudly to make SUNY Nanotech the anchor hub for the National Semiconductor Technology Center, created in his Chips and Science Act, which was signed into law in August of 2022. Schumer says the law is meant to keep the U.S. on the cutting edge of semiconductor manufacturing and innovation. We lost this industry to overseas and good paying jobs. We lost them to China, to Taiwan and other places. But now the industry's coming back. That's why I wrote the Chips and Science Bill with upstate New York in mind. And it's so gratifying to see people optimistic, whether it's in Buffalo or Rochester or Utica or Albany, the capital region, central New York, the Hudson Valley, 
people see hope, they see a future, they see an industry that they know will grow and expand. When their kids get a job here, they know not only is it good paying, but it's going to stay and have even a greater future. It's so terrific. And, but it's also terrific for America. Because you know, when you do the research, that often sets the rules. And we're going to do the top notch, top of the line, not duplicated anywhere, research right here. Schumer says Albany Nanotech will be the only facility in North America and one of only two public institutions in the world to employ high NAEUV lithography. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Back with us this week is Natasha Pernicka, Executive Director of the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York. Last time we spoke about the issue of rising food insecurity in New York State. This week, Natasha begins by talking about how on a national level, we need to look at food as a basic need. The U.S. doesn't recognize food as a basic right. The U.N. does. Food is a human right. But the United States... We should probably start there, shouldn't we? Yeah, well, and that's one of the things we're we're looking to do um, here in New York. Maine is the first state in the U.S. to um, designate food as a human right. And if the state was obligated to make sure that everyone in the state had enough to eat, it would greatly reduce health care costs. So many of our health care or our health chronic health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, even mental health and obviously obesity are impacted greatly by the quality and quantity of food that you have. Malnutrition is one of the major causes here, right? And yeah. that of course leads to, and a question I had before, when it comes to food pantries and these other charitable options, you, you can't always rely on the best quality. You know, you're going to have the food that's given uh, out of charity, but you don't get the cream of the crop. crop. You're not getting necessarily the healthiest food. You're getting food. Yeah, and pantries do strive to provide healthy food, but there's really limited dollars. And especially with food inflation continuing to rise, earlier this year we were 10 to 14 percent higher based uh, on a lot of common pantry staples. I just heard another report that it's another 5 percent over last year. Um, you know, pantries are having to provide less variety um, and, you know, healthy things are more expensive. So, it's really pushing us back uh, almost a decade. I've been with the food pantries for 12 years. And when I first started doing hunger relief work, most pantries didn't provide fresh produce at that time. Now, uh, most pantries do provide some kind of fresh produce for people, which New York State has done some great programs. They launched Nourish New York during COVID, which was a really good win-win solution where food pantries and food banks um, buy food directly from New York State producers and farmers. So that helped add additional fresh produce and dairy and meats. What about the People's Garden Initiative? Is that something similar? Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with the People's Gardening Initiative, but 
Um, but over the years, I do have a lot of people say, shouldn't everybody just garden? And while gardening is great, it's also very fickle. And if you have very limited time and resources, I love gardening. Um, my garden this year did not produce well at all. Tomatoes were particularly bad in some places. I had no tomatoes, and my zucchini didn't do well either. But it's just, it's like, it's a nice to have, um, but it's not something that we can rely on um, to really, it's more of another Band-Aid as, as instead of an actual political solution to the problem of hunger. Speaking of, because I can't resist, I ask you on the political spectrum, <laughs> from left to right, who identifies or who do you get a more friendly response and conversation with on the political spectrum when you're dealing with the issue of hunger? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I want to I wanna preface it by saying we had done a um, public opinion poll with Siena College a couple years back. And we asked questions about, do you believe that everyone in New York State should have enough food to eat? It was like 96% of people said yes. I don't know who those other 4% were. Me either, but it's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> yeah. It tells you which way to answer. Yeah, but really most people believe that everybody should have enough to eat. And we asked the question, should we spend as much money as we have to in order to make sure that everybody has a has enough food? And it was like 91% of people said yes. So whether you're liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican, everyone believes that everyone should have food. The problem is they not think the state should pay for it. Yes. And that and that's where, you know, most food pantries are actually located in churches. This is similar nationally, right? So yes. generally the Republicans and the conservatives say that's what charities are for yes. in our society. Yes. The Democrats and the some of the independents and others would say, well, it's a little more complicated than than that. And in fact, we're not filling all the gaps when we just rely on charities and people should have a right to have food. Yes, exactly. And it's also at this point where it's a it's a systemic issue. It's an income issue because people don't have enough income. And a good point, and at least I can in the New York capital area, I have more detailed statistics when the child tax credits were implemented, we had a 24% decrease in the number of people seeking assistance from the 70 pantries here in, in the capital. And so there were less children, less older adults, 24% less people. That's because people could go to the grocery store. People would rather go to the grocery store. They had enough money to do that. When the child tax credit ended and coupling that with inflation, in 2022, we saw a 38% increase in service levels. And the, the biggest change was inflation and the child tax credit. And the two groups that turned, that had the highest so increases- So that's a legislative fix. Yes, yes. I mean, that's where the government, by investing in programs like SNAP, Universal Free Breakfast and Lunch, but honestly, SNAP, if we can't do it through living wages, then make sure everybody has enough money to shop at the grocery store. We had an older gentleman, a pantry shared recently that he only gets $28 a month in SNAP benefits. And for the first time ever, he's had to turn to a food pantry. He's retired. He's like, what am I supposed to do with $28? So now he's, we're supplementing SNAP with food pantries, which is not 
the nature of what food pantries are supposed to be a short-term emergency, help your neighbor, something happened. It's not supposed to be the supplemental well, food ser- system for the poor. Nor, Natasha Pernicka, is the emergency room supposed to be the main place that poor people go for health care. Right, right. Yes. It's supposed to be an emergency temporary fix for whatever you're hurting at right this moment. Well, and that's where we don't invest. Our government does not invest in prevention, right? We're reactive. Lobbyists can get more attention if you're responding to a crisis, right? Or what's a short-term win? We're not looking at this from a long-term system change, which requires all of the moving parts to have policies that are complementary. And right now, you know, federal government doesn't work that way. And state government doesn't yet. I've seen the state agencies uh, come together to start coordinating the agency's work uh, on anti-hunger and food system efforts, which has been it has been wonderful to see the efforts. But how do we take that to the next level? And really, it's the governor and it's the legislative branch that are really the decision makers and they get swayed by lobbyists. So we can do really great work uh, in collaboration with agencies, but uh, special interests, even within the charitable food system, end up getting attention and resources sometimes on behalf of a particular group instead of moving us all together forward. That's Natasha Pernicka, executive director of the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. It's been almost 40 years since former New York Governor Mario Cuomo's keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in San Francisco, a landmark moment for a generation of liberalism and one that many thought would lead to the White House. Today, Cuomo's shadow still looms over New York State politics, even after his son left office without serving the fourth term that eluded his father. A new special three-part podcast series, Mario Cuomo, The Last Liberal, looks at Cuomo's rise and legacy. It's hosted by New York One anchor and New York Magazine columnist Errol Lewis, who joined the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. Great to be with you. Well, what got you thinking about Mario Cuomo now? There were a couple of reasons. I was kicking it around with my podcast producer, Anthony Roman. We've done this occasionally in the past. We did one series a couple of years ago about David Dinkins, and this was shortly before he passed. It's a chance to put some things in perspective. You know, ultimately, I think what really drove it was the reality that we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary. It's really nine years, I guess, since Mario Cuomo passed. He was really a pivotal figure in a lot of ways in American politics and certainly New York politics. And with his son having resigned in 2021, that really put an end to the Cuomo era to a certain extent. And so... Here we are a year later, sort of trying to make sense of the old man, of Mario Cuomo. And there's a certain urgency, I guess, Ian, to just be blunt about it. A lot of people who were close to him and who helped build that administration are getting up there in age. And we had a real recognition that if we don't talk to these folks now, we may not get a chance to do it later. So 
let's see if we can get their opinions and their recollections and their memories about what that administration was all about and see if we can lay it out for people. In the podcast, we get to hear some of the early days when Cuomo was coming of age and before politics. What attracted him to a life in public? Um, because he came from you know relatively modest beginnings, and it's not something that probably his ancestors could have envisioned for him. Well, look, you're being polite about it. He came from dire poverty. Mm -hmm. His parents were immigrants who ran a little grocery store in South Jamaica. It was a tough way to make a living, but he happened to be brilliant. He also happened to be an athlete. And, you know, he excelled in school and thought he was going to become a professional baseball player and even became part of a farm team, got a signing bonus that was pretty decent for the time and began to prepare for that kind of a career. But life took him in a different direction. Unlike a lot of the people we deal with now, I'm sure you've dealt with them too, who appear to have wanted to be in public service or to run from office from the time they were about eight. Mario Cuomo finds himself 42 years old, married, an attorney, a successful career. He's got five kids. And then he sort of gets tapped. He gets asked by a Republican mayor, John Lindsay, to help straighten out a particular problem. And this is the kind of thing that could happen back then. And that was another sort of impetus behind this podcast series was to show that you don't have to be a lifelong career politician. You don't have to have been planning it from the time you were in junior high school. You could be a, a full grown, fully realized, successful attorney and then just decide to do politics for the right reason, which is really just public service. So this podcast project is kind of a chance to listen to some of the old clips. And I don't know if you had this sense, but I did. You know, he just kind of had it. He was a natural speaker. He made connections with people. Looking back at his rise in politics, were you able to put your finger on what made him so good at being in this particular role? Well, look, he, he, he was extraordinary. Let's take nothing away from him. But he was also grounded in a different political era when your ability to speak actually mattered. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> this is the pre-television era when words and rhetoric were about the, the logic and the flow and the syntax and the, the, the way you evoked images just with your words. You weren't the image. It was the images that you could summon with your voice that the listeners were tuned into. So if you want to put it that way, you could say he was sort of from the radio era as opposed to the television era and mastered it. He was extraordinarily good in person and on the stump. And it turned out he was actually pretty good in person at the convention. And he could sort of transmit it through television. But whenever you hear Mario Cuomo, and we listen to a lot of his old speeches, what you hear is somebody who is not thinking about the color of his tie or the tint of his glasses or anything like that. This is somebody who's thinking about the words and the ideas and putting them together in a way that will connect with the listener and, and stir certain images and certain emotions. That's partly a gift, but it's also a kind of formal training of a kind that I think our public figures don't really get these days. The president said that he didn't understand that fear. He said, why this country is a shining city on a hill. And the president is right. In many ways, we are a shining city on a hill. But the hard truth is that not everyone is sharing in this city's splendor and glory. So to follow up on that, I think one of the conventional knocks on Cuomo was that he famously campaigned in poetry, but, you know, when you govern in prose, he didn't leave so much of a legacy uh, on the government side. What's your view on that? Uh, well, he, he did, but a lot of it was invisible. 
right? This was not somebody who wanted to slap his name on a lot of different buildings. This wasn't somebody who was eager to be at a ribbon cutting or sit behind a bulldozer and carve out a name for himself literally in the earth. He was instead somebody who did things like veto 12 consecutive bills that landed on his desk trying to implement a death penalty in New York. He just vetoed every single one of them. And you know, he literally saved lives because of that. We've covered, I'm sure you've covered it upstate. We certainly covered literally dozens of cases just in New York City of people who were exonerated of crimes, terrible crimes for which they served decades in prison and might have been put to death were it not for Mario Cuomo. He did things like make sure that there was job training available for people getting public assistance, welfare recipients. That changed lives. That rescued people from dependency. But there's no building left behind. That was the kind of political leader that he was, and there was a certain modesty that came with it. He wasn't looking for a lot of credit. He wasn't looking for his name on a bridge or a building. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, he wouldn't even sit for his own official portrait to hang in the Hall of Governors on the second floor of the state capitol, like all of his predecessors. So there are people, you know, going all the way back to the 1700s, you have these governors that are, you know, they, they sat for their portrait and it hangs in the Hall of Governors. Not for Mario Cuomo. He thought it was self-indulgent. He didn't want to take the time to do it, and he, and he never did. So we obviously here at WAMC have thought a lot about the decision not to run for president and also not to take a seat on the Supreme Court. Did you get any closer to an answer to the big question that hangs over Cuomo? Why not in your reporting for this podcast? I didn't get an answer, but I did develop an opinion. Okay. Um, there were a lot of people he kept guessing, including people who were very, very close to him, who did not know up until the moment that he announced. Famously, while there was a plane idling, waiting to take him to New Hampshire, where he could file the $1,000 filing fee and put himself into the 1992 primary for president. My belief is that, first of all, we take him at his word. He said that there were pressing matters in Albany, and he didn't want to leave the people in the lurch. I think also he would have had a really hard time on the presidential campaign trail. I mean, he just wasn't built for the kind of modern political glad-handing that really constitutes the road to the White House. It just wasn't his kind of a thing. So I think he would have had a really hard time on the campaign trail. And it's possible he might have recognized that. That's part of it. On the Supreme Court, though, I think he would have been a spectacular Supreme Court justice. And that's the one I really wonder about. I don't really wonder about the presidential. I don't, I don't know that he would have made it, frankly, all the way to the convention and beyond to defeat a sitting president. On the other hand, when I think about the Supreme Court, he would have been an almost perfect match. And he would have brought forward values and arguments and an approach to society and to the law that would have really made him one of the greats that ever sat on the bench. So I think from working on this project, I got a clearer sense that really he was a thinking man, a thoughtful man, somebody who wanted to move society at its deepest levels by changing the way we deal with one another. But I don't think he was the kind of political animal that can win the White House anymore. He ended up losing the bid for the fourth term to George Pataki, which in retrospect seems like, you know, a bit of an aberration in New York politics today where we haven't had a statewide Republican victor since Pataki. What do you make of the end of his career as governor? It was unfortunate, for one thing. I think there is an opponent out there that stalks many successful political leaders, and it's called 
stayed around too long. Mario Cuomo had advisors who told him a fourth term is just too much. Politically speaking, the handwriting was kind of on the wall in the sense that not only was the nation changing generally, and it was a Republican wave in 1994 that swept him out of office along with a whole lot of other Democrats, but the handwriting was on the wall just in terms of New York politics, meaning his first reelection was smashing. The reelection for the third term was probably closer than it should have been. And he was running against somebody who was an absolute novice. And the fact that it was as close as it was, was really an indicator that things are changing. Voters' preferences maybe are changing. Something is going on in the electorate that you should pay attention to. And a fourth term was going to be very, very tough. And even if he'd won it, honestly, Ian, it would have been a very tough four years. Because again, at the national level, and even in New York State, the politics were going in a different direction. Errol Lewis is a New York One anchor and New York Magazine columnist, and the new podcast is on the legacy of Mario Cuomo. It's called Mario Cuomo, The Last Liberal. Errol, thanks for taking all this time to speak with us, and best of luck. Thank you, Ian. Great to be with you. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2350. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPInfo.org.